0: The story is told that in the early 1900s, a husband and wife were on a ship returning to the United States after many years of faithful missionary service in Africa. On that same ship was President Theodore Roosevelt, who was returning from big game hunting in Africa. And as the ship pulled into the harbor in New York City, scores of cheering people were there to welcome the president home. But sadly, no one was there to welcome the missionary's home. Disappointed and hurt by this, the husband said to his wife, look at this, we've given our lives to serve Christ and no one welcomes us home. The president, he shoots some animals and he's given a hero's reception. To which his wife replied, no one is welcoming us home because we're not home yet. And she was right, because the Bible teaches that heaven is the real home for believers in Christ? Even as we just sang with that song, "Will be home," but it's biblical because in 2 Corinthians five eight, the apostle Paul speaks of being. He said, "At home with the Lord, absent from this body, at home with the Lord." The apostle also said in Philippians three twenty that our citizenship is in heaven. See, according to Scripture, those who know Christ as their Savior and their Lord we're just aliens, we're pilgrims, we're sojourners passing through this life until we arrive home in heaven. Now this morning as we continue and conclude our brief series on heaven, I want us to consider one more important question. Having asked... Three questions already. What is heaven, number one? Number two, what will life be like for us in heaven? And number three, what will we be doing in heaven? Today I want us to consider the very important question, what will we be like in heaven? What will we be like? And what I mean by this broad and rather general question is that there are a host of issues that we legitimately, we wonder about. Really, they're related to what will be like in heaven, such as what kind of bodies will we have in heaven? Will we be able to recognize one another in heaven? What will relationships be like in heaven? Will we be married in heaven? But before we address any of these issues, I want to clarify something important, and that is that throughout this series on heaven, my focus has been on the ultimate heaven, That is to say, heaven in its permanent form. Meaning what? Meaning heaven after it descends to the new earth following the thousand-year millennial kingdom of Christ and then at the end of that, the great white throne judgment. In other words, my focus has been on when heaven comes down to the new earth. However, I want you to be aware that the Bible teaches that until that day arrives, when a believer in Christ dies now, they immediately go to heaven. But not the new earth form of heaven, but rather what we would refer to as the present day heaven. In 2 Corinthians again, 5, Paul taught that to be absent from this body, meaning after we die, he said, is to be present with the Lord. He means in heaven. This is why the apostle said in Philippians 1 that to die is gain because He said that dying was a departure from this present life to be with Jesus in heaven. That's why it's gain. And when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was dying, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, which the Lord did. And from that moment on, Stephen has been with Jesus in heaven these last 2,000 years. And for all of these years right now, Today, leading up to today, all these years, every believer in Christ who has died has immediately been ushered into the presence of the Lord. But I want you to understand that they are now not in the new earth form of heaven, but in the present heaven. Eventually, they, with all of us who know Christ, will be in heaven in its perpetual eternal form on the new earth. Now, it's not my intention to focus In this series on the present heaven. But I do want you to know a few things. About this. Before we move on today in our study. I want you to know that heaven today. Is the most wonderful place. You've ever been. Because Jesus is there. Believers. Will be sinless. And perfect there. And note this. We will have intermediate. Temporary bodies there. Yet perfect bodies. But they'll be temporary as we await the day of the resurrection when we will receive our permanent bodies. And the primary reason for believing that we will have these intermediate temporary bodies in the present heaven is because when in Revelation chapter 6 we're given a glimpse of those who will be martyred, killed for their faith during the horrible seven-year tribulation period just prior to our Lord's return, here's what we read in verses 9 through 11. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Now I want you to notice something important about these verses. We read here that these martyrs, these who will be martyrs, will be given clothes, clothing. Specifically, we're told, a white robe. What's significant about this is that if they have clothes, it means that they have to have bodies to clothe and cover. As one Bible teacher put it, he said, Disembodied spirits don't wear clothing. So we have clothes. In heaven today, your loved ones have bodies. Bodies that are clothed. In addition to having a perfect, though temporary body, one of the main questions people often have when it comes to heaven, meaning the present heaven, is do people in heaven know what's going on down here on earth? That is to say, can our loved ones in heaven see us? And do they know anything about what's happening in our lives? Well, for many years I've believed and I've actually taught that we just don't know what the saints in heaven know about our lives here on earth because the Bible, I've said, doesn't tell us if those in heaven know or can see events transpiring on earth. But I'm going to change that this morning because after reading Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, I have indeed changed my my thinking because, as he points out, there are passages... Passages of scripture that say that those in heaven do know what's happening on the earth. For example, the passage we just read in Revelation chapter 6 about those martyred during the tribulation. That passage tells us that in heaven, these martyrs, they ask the Lord how long it will be before he judges and avenges their deaths. As he deals with those on earth who took their lives. And what this indicates, folks is that these martyrs, they know what's going on during the tribulation period. They can see it. They know what's happening. They know that their murderers are still alive and still wreaking havoc on other believers. So, people in heaven apparently do see the events unfolding on earth. In addition, in Revelation 19, right after God destroys the Antichrist earthly empire known as Babylon, also the mother of harlots, We read in verses 1 through 6. This is Revelation 19. After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous for He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality and He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And the second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Now, notice that these hallelujahs come from those who are in the present heaven. Why? Because they know what has just happened, what has just taken place on earth. That with the destruction of the great harlot, as I said, known as Babylon, the tribulation, they know, is about to end, and therefore that Jesus is about to return as King of kings and Lord of lords and so they're rejoicing and they're praising God because having observed these events taking place on earth they are giving adoration to the Lord. And so, based on these passages and there are some others, it would appear that your loved ones in heaven can indeed see what's going on down here and they look forward to Christ's return. They look forward to the establishing of his millennial kingdom on earth. They look forward to that kingdom age ending when God will bring about the new earth as heaven descends and the present heaven becomes the permanent eternal heaven. And so, returning then to the question that we want to explore today, what will we be like in heaven? Meaning, what will we be like in that eternal permanent form of heaven when it descends to the new earth? The first thing I want you to know is that in heaven you will maintain your own unique identity. In other words, in heaven, you'll still be you. The real you, with all of your distinct personality traits that make you that special individual that God created you to be. Although, without any sin to distort and corrupt your personality. As you'll recall from the four New Testament gospel accounts of Jesus, after the Lord rose from the grave and then 40 days later returned to heaven... He didn't become someone else. He didn't lose his identity. He was the same person he was before the resurrection. And that's why when Jesus appeared to his disciples in Luke 24 verse 39, he said, see my hands and my feet. It is I myself. He didn't say it's somebody else. He said, you recognize me. You know me. He identified himself as himself, the one they had just spent three years with, and they knew, and they recognized him because he was who he always was. And in Matthew 22, when the Sadducees tried to trip Jesus up with a question about marriage and the resurrection because they didn't believe in the resurrection, he referred them back to the Old Testament, to Exodus 3, verse 6, where when appearing to Moses in a burning bush, God referred to himself not only as the great I Am, but he also identified himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And in citing this verse to the Sadducees, Jesus then added this comment, this statement. He said, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, what he was saying is that Though these three men died thousands of years ago, they're still living. They're in heaven. And they're still the same individuals with the same identities they had while on earth. There were still Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with God ruling over them in heaven just as He ruled over them on earth. In addition, as you'll recall, when Moses and Elijah appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, They were still Moses, still Elijah. And the disciples who were with the Lord, the three disciples, they recognized them as Moses and Elijah. So folks, who you are on earth is who you're going to be in heaven. In fact, it would be impossible for it to be any other way. Absolutely impossible. Why do I say that? Because in heaven... In heaven, God is going to give us rewards based on our past obedience to him on earth. And as we learned last week, he's also going to give us responsibilities to rule on the new earth based on our faithfulness to him in this life. None of this would be possible if suddenly in heaven we lost our personal identities so that we ceased to be the unique individual's he created us to be, and we're just absorbed into one big, unidentifiable mass of humanity. Concerning the continuation of our identities in heaven, along with our unique personality traits, theologian Bruce Milne, not to be confused with our own resident theologian, Bruce Mills, said this. Milne said, we can banish all fear of being absorbed into the all which Buddhism holds before us, or reincarnated in some other life form as in the post-mortem prospect of Hinduism. Self with which we were endowed by the Creator in His gift of life to us, the self whose worth was secured forever in the self-substitution of God for us on the cross, that self will endure into eternity. Death cannot destroy us. So we will definitely maintain our personal identity in heaven. However, though you still will be you in heaven, there will be a tremendous change that will have taken place in you, but not with your personality. Rather, it will be with your character, your internal character. Because in heaven, the Bible says that every believer in Christ will be like Christ in glory. Will be like him in glory in our character Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28, a very familiar verse to many of us, says this And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now Paul teaches that right now, presently, God through providence is causing all things that he sovereignly brings into your life to sanctify you. And he's doing this for the purpose of making you more Christ-like, more holy, more compassionate, more sensitive, more loving, more caring, and on and on we could go. This is what spiritual growth means. When we talk about growing spiritually, we mean becoming more and more like Jesus in character. And he will continue doing this until we reach heaven, when at that very moment, we will not only be free of sin, but we will instantly become conformed to the image of Christ. In fact, notice that Paul says that we were predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. Meaning that at some point in eternity past, God ordained, he determined, that every believer in Christ would someday be, not Jesus, because only Jesus is Jesus. He's deity, the second person of the Trinity. But that we would be like him in terms of our perfected character. And Paul is so certain, so sure, That this will happen, that God will bring to pass what he has predetermined to happen. That notice in verse 30 of Romans 8, he says that those whom God has predestined to become like Christ, notice he says, he has also glorified. Now folks, think about this. We haven't been glorified yet. That's something that's going to take place in the future when you die. But notice that Paul speaks of it in the past tense, as if it's already happened. Why does he put it this way? It hasn't happened yet. Why does Paul put it in the past tense? Simply to emphasize, to stress the certainty of this, that you can count on this happening. It's as good as happened. God has ordained this to happen, and whatever he has ordained for sure will come to pass we would say today you can consider it a done deal. If God said it would happen, you can speak of it as if it's already happened because that's how certain it is to happen. In heaven, you will, character wise, be like Jesus. Think about how wonderful this is going to be. It won't simply be that you'll be free of sin, that in and of itself is wonderful, but also that you'll be fully sanctified so that you will be like Jesus in how you love others. How you treat others, how you talk to others, how you serve others, how you esteem others, how you honor others, and in every other way. You'll be like Him in humility, in your kindness, your thoughtfulness, your love for the Father, your holy desires, your joy, your motivations, and everything else that comes with being conformed to to His image. But it's not only your character that will be like Jesus. The Bible also teaches that in heaven, you're going to have a resurrected, glorified body like Jesus has Philippians three twenty and 21 again for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior the Lord Jesus Christ that's what we're doing now who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he is even to subject all things to himself now Paul says that right now meaning at this present time We are eagerly waiting for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to return from heaven. But someday, someday in the future, when he takes us to heaven, he, by his unlimited power, is going to transform our bodies to be like his glorified body. Now folks, notice how Paul describes our present bodies. He refers to it as the body of our humble state. And the specific Greek word that the apostle chose to use here, that's translated humble, means lowly. It means insignificant. And isn't that the case? These bodies really are weak. They're wearing out, aren't they? In Second Corinthians 4.17, Paul says that our outer man is decaying, meaning that our physical bodies are in the process of growing old and eventually dying. This is the result of the fall of man. And it will happen to all of us, even those of you who are young right now and you cannot imagine ever growing old and decrepit. I assure you, it'll happen. Young people, it'll happen. Everyone here who's older was once young. And they'll testify that that's right. Eventually, the physical things that you were able to do, you won't be able to do anymore. The knees will get weak or damaged. Your muscles will grow tight and stiff. So that you can't move like you once did. Your eyesight will become dimmer. Your hearing will become impaired. Not to mention any number of internal organs that will fail to function like they used to when you were young. Now have I depressed you enough? (laughs) Is that enough? Well the good news is that your failing, decaying body isn't permanent. Because when you go to heaven you're going to get a glorious new body that will never decay a body, Paul says, it will be like Christ's resurrected body. So, what kind of body did Jesus have after he was raised from the dead? Well, in his resurrected body, Jesus could walk through closed doors, as he did in John chapter 20, where we read in verse 19, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. Now notice that our Lord did not knock and wait for the doors to be opened. In his resurrected body, he just walked through those closed doors and stood in the midst of his disciples. So apparently, just like the Lord in our new bodies, we will not be limited by the natural laws of physics. We also read in the New Testament that it was in his resurrected body that Jesus ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives, Acts 1-9, and after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Likewise, it would appear then that in our new body, in your new body and mine, we'll be able to overcome the law of gravity. I'm really looking forward to this, I have to tell you, because I've always wanted to fly like Superman. (laughs) It's been one of my great dreams in life. And something really interesting concerning our Lord's new body is that we read that after the resurrection, Jesus ate, he ate food with his disciples on several occasions. In fact, on one, he cooked the fish for them. He had said to them, little children, do you have anything to eat? As he was cooking a meal for them on the beach in the Galilee area. And in Revelation 22, verse 2, we read that in heaven... The tree of life will be there bearing 12 kinds of fruit. So, does this mean that we will need to eat food in heaven? Not necessarily. It may simply indicate that in heaven, God, out of the kindness and goodness of his heart, will give us the pleasure of eating food, not because we'll need food to sustain our bodies, but just for the sheer enjoyment of it, because enjoying food is nice. It's a good thing. So folks, imagine what that will be like. You won't have to be concerned at all about putting on weight, about calories, about starchy carbohydrates, about unhealthy fats, and any diet plans. You'll just be able to eat the best food you have ever enjoyed. So now that we know something about our resurrected bodies, it's only natural to wonder, what will we look like? What will we look like in heaven? Well, scripture doesn't reveal any specifics about our personal appearance. However, Randy Alcorn in his book on heaven has some common sense sanctified thoughts about this. He writes these words, I expect our bodies will be good looking, but not with a weightlifting, artificial implant, skin tuck, tanning booth sort of beauty. The sculpted physique our culture admires would be regarded as freakish in other places and times. Some cultures consider what we call slimness as unhealthy and what we consider plumpness as a sign of vitality and prosperity. The same genetic tendencies that make some people unattractive by one culture's standards make them attractive in another. Our new bodies, I expect, will have a natural beauty that won't need cosmetics or touch-ups. The most beautiful person you've ever seen is under the curse, a shadow of the beauty that once characterized humanity. If we saw Adam and Eve as they were in Eden, they would likely take our breath away. If they would have seen us as we are now, they would likely have been filled with shock and pity. God will decide what our perfect bodies look like, but we certainly shouldn't assume that they'll all look alike. Differing heights and weights seem as likely as different skin colors. Racial identities will continue. He bases that on there'll be every tribe, from people from every tribe there. And this involves a genetic carryover from the old body to the new. Of this, we can be certain. No matter what we look like, our bodies will please the Lord, ourselves, and others. We won't gaze into the mirror wishing for a different nose or different cheeks, ears or teeth. The sinless beauty of the inner person will overflow into the beauty of the outer person. We'll feel neither insecurity or arrogance. We won't attempt to hide or impress. We won't have to try to look beautiful. We will be beautiful. Great words. Now so far, in answer to the question what will we be like in heaven, we've seen that we will maintain the same Identity, with the same unique character traits that you have now, only without sin. And character-wise, we will be like Jesus. In addition, physically, we will have bodies that resemble Christ's resurrected body, making us able to overcome the present laws of physics. And as far as our physical appearance is concerned, though we haven't been told the details, we can be certain that we won't have any problem with the way we will look in heaven. Therefore, having focused on these changes that will define us in heaven in the time remaining, I want to address what our relationship with other people will be like in heaven. And specifically, I want to look at three sub-questions under this category. Number one question being this, will we recognize one another in heaven? My mother-in-law, LaVon Hughes, used to wonder about this a great deal and she would ask me about this. And the answer is absolutely, we'll recognize each other in heaven. What do I base this certainty on? Well, for one thing, the disciples repeatedly recognized Jesus in his resurrected body and they weren't even in heaven yet with perfected minds, but they definitely knew who he was. Secondly, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Lord's three disciples, they recognized Moses and Elijah. And what's so interesting about this is that the Lord's disciples lived many years after these two Old Testament characters were on earth. So they couldn't possibly have known what they looked like. There were no photographs back then. Oh, here's what Moses looked like. Here's what Elijah looked like. So if that's the case, then how did these three disciples recognize Moses and Elijah? Well, one Bible teacher I read offered this thought. He said, This may suggest that personality will emanate through a person's body, so we'll instantly recognize people we know of, but haven't previously met. If we can recognize those we've never seen, how much more will we recognize our family and friends? So what about our family and friends? Is there any clear biblical evidence that we will see and recognize them in heaven? That's question now number two. And the answer is yes, there is. And for that, I want you to see the famous rapture passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, where Paul says, "...we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you'll not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord..." that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is just an expression for death. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words now let me explain in these verses Paul is addressing the fear that some of the Christians at the Thessalonian church had specifically what specifically that their loved ones who had already died would miss out on the Lord's return they've already died they're concerned that that Lord comes back they're gonna miss out on this but Paul dispels that fear by teaching that they won't miss out on anything because at some point Jesus is going to come back and take those who have died back with him to heaven by raising their bodies from the dead, reuniting their bodies with their souls, while at the same time catching up, commonly known as the rapture of the church, snatching up those believers alive at that time so that those who have died in Christ will join those who are still alive, and at that moment they will be reunited forever, not only with the Lord, but with one another. And that's why this passage ends with verse 18 telling those believers who were so concerned about their loved ones who had died. Paul says, after you know this now, comfort one another with these words. And the reason for this comfort is threefold. Number one, the comfort comes because they now know the truth that their Christian loved ones who died won't miss out On the Lord's return because Jesus will return for them by resurrecting them from the grave. And allowing them to be part of the glorious rapture of the church. Secondly, their comfort comes from knowing that they'll be with the Lord forever. Which is what verse 17 says. But the third reason for their comfort comes from knowing that they will be reunited. With their Christian loved ones, both family and friends. And that'll happen when the Lord descends from heaven And takes the dead in Christ together with those who are alive at the time in the clouds to meet him in the air as he takes them back to heaven. You see, the comfort isn't only that they'll be with the Lord forever, but that they'll also be with their loved ones forever. Now you may look at this passage and think, Well, Steve, nowhere in these verses does it say that we'll know and recognize each other in heaven. But listen, the whole point of our being comforted by being reunited with our loved ones, is that we'll know and recognize them in heaven. There wouldn't be any comfort in a reunion in heaven unless you already knew the people you were being reunited with and would continue to know and recognize them in heaven. In fact, it was that great man of God, Bishop J.C. Ryle, who said this about this very passage in First Thessalonians 4. Ryle said, there would be no point in these words of consolation if they did not imply the mutual recognition of saints. The hope with which he cheers wearied Christians is the hope of meeting our beloved friends again. But in the moment that we who are saved shall meet our several friends in heaven, we shall at once know them and they will at once know us. And then we have these encouraging words from that well-known missionary, Amy Carmichael, who said, Shall we know one another in heaven? Shall we love and remember? I don't think anyone need wonder about this or doubt for a single moment. We are never told we shall because I expect it was not necessary to say anything about this which our own hearts tell us. We do not need words for if we think for a moment, we know. Would you be yourself if you did not love and remember? We're told that we should be like our Lord Jesus. Surely, this does not mean in holiness only, but in everything. And does not he know and love and remember? He would not be himself if he did not, and we should not be ourselves if we did not. So folks, of course we'll know and recognize each other in heaven. Let me put it this way. Heaven would not be heaven without continuing those precious relationships we had during this lifetime. It just wouldn't be heaven. We will know one another. And so we now come to the final question about our relationships with one another in the new earth in heaven and the question that many of you have been waiting for this entire series. Will we be married in heaven? Well, unlike some of the things about life in heaven that haven't been revealed to us, the question about marriage has been revealed. It was revealed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. Starting with verse 23, we read these words. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, "'Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother or as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother." Now there were seven brothers with us and the first married and died and having no children left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all the woman died in the resurrection therefore whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. Now Moses in the law taught this rule. He taught this rule of a single brother. He's not a married brother but a single brother marrying now his deceased brother's wife in order to perpetuate his dead brother's line if his brother died without having any children but the sadducees as i said one of the leading religious groups in our lord's day they use this law this rule to mock the concept of the resurrection telling jesus about a woman who was married to seven brothers, and asking him which man she would be married to in the resurrection. And folks, they did this because they didn't believe in the doctrine of the resurrection, and they wanted to use it to not only mock the doctrine, but to trap Jesus. But Jesus, knowing exactly what they were doing, showed them that they were wrong about the resurrection, because the scriptures taught this doctrine, and therefore he certainly believed it. We read, following the verses I just read to you, verse 29, but Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. Now let me just pause here and say, in this world of being, trying to be politically correct, this is a tremendous statement of not being politically correct. Jesus didn't say, you know, you have a good point, but let's think this thing through. He said, no, you're wrong. You're mistaken. You're in error. He said, you're mistaken. Not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of, Of God. Men, you're wrong. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, with these words, Jesus made it very clear that in heaven, we are not going to experience marriage to another human being. At that point, we will be like angels. We won't be angels, but we will be like angels only in the sense that they don't marry each other as well. Now, frankly, this has troubled. A lot of Christians, in particular those who have enjoyed a very good and happy marriage, especially those who have been married for many, many years, and they can't imagine life in heaven without being married to their much-loved spouse. So let's think our way through this. Let's consider a few important truths. First of all, we have to consider why God created marriage in the first place in order to understand why it will not exist in heaven. And the biblical answer as to why God created the institution of marriage is because Adam needed a helper and Eve needed a protector and a provider. In addition, God established the rule that children were to be produced by the sexual intimacy of a husband and wife. But in heaven, none of this will be needed. Men won't need a helper and women won't need a protector and provider because they will both be perfect without any of those kinds of needs. And no one will be born in heaven because only those who were saved in this lifetime will be there and heaven's population will never increase once we all get there. But I want you to listen closely and hopefully I can encourage you with what I'm about to say. Just because you won't be married to your much-loved spouse in heaven does not mean that you won't maintain the closest and deepest of friendships with them in heaven. I want you to hear these very encouraging and very reassuring words by who else? But of course, Randy Alcorn. He wrote this, people with good marriages are each other's best friends. There's no reason to believe they won't still be best friends in heaven. My wife, Nancy, is my best friend and my closest sister in Christ. Will we become more distant in the new world? Of course not will become closer, I'm convinced. Jesus said the institution of human marriage would end having fulfilled its purpose. But he never hinted that deep relationships between married people would end. In our lives here, two people can be business partners, but when they are no longer partners, it doesn't mean their friendship ends. The relationship built during One kind of partnership often carries over to a permanent friendship after the partnership has ended. I expect that to be true on the new earth for family members and friends who stood by each other. So, I say to my married friends who are troubled because you won't be married to your much-loved spouse in heaven, you don't need to be troubled. You don't need to be concerned about that. You'll be closer to your spouse than you ever were here on earth, your friendship with them will be deepened. It'll be even more meaningful than it has ever been in this world. And so, having studied this week about marriage, these truths I'm sharing with you ceasing in heaven, I asked my beloved wife, Michelle, if she wanted me to be close to her in heaven since we won't be married then. And to my great relief, she said, Of course. And And then Michelle quickly added, but don't expect me to make you dinner then. (laughs) And my response was, fine, and don't expect me to be your tech guy for your computer questions then, which is a scary thought that I'm even her tech guy now. But then you won't need me and it won't happen. And so on that note, I think this would be a good place for us to conclude our series on heaven. As I told you when we started these studies in heaven, I told you it would be brief, and it was, just three Sundays. But I would encourage you to take this as just a little taste of what you can learn more about this, about your future home, and to do that by by purchasing and reading Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. It's a great book. Because it covers so much more about heaven than I've been able to cover in these weeks. It will enlighten you, it will edify you, it will, it will just encourage you. But what I hope that this series, brief as it was, what I hope it has done for you, was to make you excited about going to heaven. By helping you to see your future home is so very real, so very inviting and welcoming and somewhat familiar because apart from marriage, it will be a continuation of life here on earth except without sin. I want you to look forward to going there. This whole series came about because of the passing of our granddaughter, Lila. And I hope that she's had an impact on you with this. I hope you'll, you'll look forward to going there. I'm looking forward to going there. I hope that you'll have a renewed passion to tell others about going to heaven, which only comes by knowing Christ trusting Christ as Lord and Savior so i say to those of you who may not have trusted Christ either here in this auditorium or watching on youtube a live stream i urge you to do so trust Christ before it's too late these things are real eternity is real this life is fleeting it's a vapor that comes and goes and before you know it it's gone Jesus indeed is the only way to this wonderful place, our future home, called heaven. So I urge you, if you've never trusted Christ, Mm -hmm. do so without delay. And if you'd like to talk to one of our pastors about faith in Christ, about going to heaven, then please see me after as we close the service, which we're going to do right now. Father, we thank you that we've been able as a church body to study these wonderful truths about heaven, our future home. And I thank you that you put it on my heart to do this, having sorrowed about Lila and looking forward to seeing her there. Lord, if she could only know and probably now knows the impact that her life has had on earth and continues to have through these studies, I trust that she's Encouraged and happy by this, but Lord, I pray for all of us who know you that heaven will seem so real because it is real that it won't seem eerie or otherworldly, but it'll see, seem just like coming home. And I pray that you'll help us in the meantime to live for you, to live faithfully in obedience to your word, but not to fear death if we know you, but to look forward to dying, to look forward to being with you, not the pain of death. But what comes after our greatest day to be with Christ. And I pray, Lord, for those who don't know you, may you draw them to yourself. Only if you do that will they come to faith. No man seeks after you by themselves, they only seek if you seek first them. So I pray that you draw them to yourself. I pray for young people to come to faith in you. I pray for older, middle aged people who never have trusted you that they'll see their need for Christ, their need for salvation. They'll see how holy you are, how sinful they are, and that Jesus is the only way and the only one who could bring about reconciliation. And all of this, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.